From Johannesburg to Jerusalem, the world is always changing, growing and innovating. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he brings you the trendsetters, the thought leaders and those creating news before it happens. Only on the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. Every Monday at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman and this is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the program on this lovely spring Monday morning. Hope you are doing absolutely fantastic out there because we've got a fantastic show lined up for you today. As ever, 20 to 10, you should join us because we will be talking to Rob Hutchinson from Dear South Africa, finding out what is going on in Parliament and how it affects you. Uh, but I'm happy to say our first guest that we're going to be talking to today is David Brock Katz, or Major Katz. Uh, he's, he's popularly known. And he's an author and historian who lectures at the, at the Army and Defense College of, South, South, of the South African National Defense Force. And he completed his military history in PhD, cum laude, if I do say so, uh, in, in the military history department uh, of, of military history at the Faculty of Military Science at Stellenbosch University. And he's also a research fellow at the Faculty of Military Science and an active member of the Andrew Malangeli Regiment, formerly the South African Irish Regiment. And he's also an author, and he's the author of South Africans versus Rommel in 2019. And the reason we have him on the show with us today is because of a new book that he has written about the life of Jan Smuts in World War One. Major Katz, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us on the New Blue Review. Thank you so much, uh, Benji. Great to be here. And thank you for so much accolades uh, in welcoming me. I really appreciate it. No, no, no problem. Now, wait, just before we get onto the book, and there's so much to talk about uh, and to talk about smuts and the book and everything, but just in the news, we're, we're seeing that the, the Ukrainians, six months on, are pushing back the Russians across the Eastern Front. I don't think too many people would have predicted that at the beginning of, of this particular outburst. I just thought if we're going to have a person like you on the show, we have to get your perspective on that. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm one of those that would have thought that the Russians would have steamrolled over the Ukrainians within the first weeks. And I think that's what they were banking on, is uh, the collapse of the Ukrainian forces uh, in a lightning-type operation right in the beginning when they tried to envelop Kiev and, and, and take the capital and do a bit of regime change. didn't work out that way because the Ukrainians were quite steadfast, put up a, a magnificent defense. And basically, uh, where we are today is that the Russians are numerically outnumbered. They just don't have enough soldiers to, uh, to, to do the job, uh, complete the job that they, they started. And, and, and seemingly the, the weapons being supplied by the West seem to be a bit of a Well, it's a tipping the balance. Yeah. Definitely tipping the balance in the favor of the Ukrainians. And uh, I would say the situation is pretty dangerous now because what do the Russians do? Uh, I hope they're not going to resort to tactical nuclear weapons to try and redress the balance. It, it's looking like it's quite a dangerous situation out there. But uh, hats off to the Ukrainians. I think they've surprised everybody in uh, in their steadfastness steadfastness the way they've conducted themselves on the battlefield yeah, incredible maybe, maybe even including themselves i think it's uh, quite remarkable although you know there has been a lot of work that i think that they did uh, after the initial invasion about 10 years ago of crimea so but it's important because i think that if as you say there's the issue of the tactical nukes but if the the the, the world community can push the the russians back i think it sends an important signal that sort of 
random invasions of countries for no apparent reason is not really on the cards, which is important for if you're, if you're Taiwan or if you're South Korea or if you're a number of other places all around the world, I think. Well, uh, certainly, I mean, it makes, it makes one rethink. Um, walls are never, never really won on numerical uh, numbers. Uh, we make a mistake by, 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 by looking at, at, at that. And uh, the Russians were rated as the second strongest military uh, before this. And uh, certainly they've fallen down a few places, much like New Zealand rugby has. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, don't. But, but I must say a caveat. Don't discount the Russians. They they always perform po- uh, poorly at, at the outset, although this is going on for a little bit long now. But, uh, you know, don't discount them totally. Oh, okay. um, uh, they didn't look very good in a, in a few other campaigns, and, and they landed up uh, uh, winning those. Well, we're certainly so, going to be talking about the importance of how armed forces are, are being put together. We're talking to Major David Katz today, and we're going to be talking about his book, General Jan Smuts and His First World War in Africa, 1914 to 1917. I am Benji Shulman, and this is 101.9 High FM. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. 101.9 High FM. We have in studio today Major David Katz talking about his new book, General Jan Smuts and His First World War in Africa, 1914 to 1917. And if you want to be part of the conversation, uh, 34519 is the SMS line. uh, And you can also get us on the Telegram line as well. Now, Major Katz... There's this, I don't know if it's apocryphal, but uh, story that's written about Jan Smuts, uh, former prime minister of South Africa, when he, when he invades the Cape Colony during the Boer War. And he does so on a horse with very little in the way of provisions, carrying the Bible in one satchel and Kant's uh, critique of pure reason in the other. And I think that a metaphor for this guy is probably, there's not a better one that I could find to explain the essence of the man. You've got... Uh, his religious views, his philosophical views, his leadership views, and of course, his war uh, and generalship attributes. And it seems to me that you started off by writing this book because the first three that I mentioned have kind of been covered by a good 30 biographies, but no one really looked at his at his war record in depth. So how did you come to the idea that perhaps this is an area that needed to be redressed in the historical record? Well, in, in writing South Africa's uh, versus Rommel, I came across uh, the phenomena of a South African way of war. I started to identify that the South Africans definitely fought differently to what the British uh, fought. And there was a distinction in, in, in military doctrine between the two. So this book on Jan Smuts is almost a prequel to that. It's a search, it's a search for uh, using Jan Smuts as a lens. It's a search for a South African way of war, a South African military doctrine of which one could say that Jan Smuts had a, an incredible influence over that. And uh, it hasn't been examined really in depth before. As you say, we've looked at Smuts and his holism, and we've looked at, uh, at Smuts the, uh, uh, the, the botanist, uh, Smuts the, 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 the uh, parliamentarian, the cabinet minister. Uh, we've looked at all those type of things, excepting for Smuts the general. Uh, and particularly not so much the general early on. As you say, like in, well, the, yes, in, in World War II, there's a bit more out there and a bit more focus, but his early campaigns much less. So. Well, well, it's interesting because, I mean, is he a gifted amateur 
or is he actually a decent general that's uh, got a, had a lot of experience by the time he, he saw the First World War? Did he have a lot of experience uh, leading armies? So that was also something I needed to examine. So let's just very quickly for listeners, it's very difficult with Smuts, right? If you, if you, if you don't know about him because he's such a big man who, who in some ways has been very much forgotten. So Absolutely. Give, give us a very quick overview of, of, of his life and where the bit is that the book actually focuses on. Well, okay, quick overview. Quick, that's quick, that's, yeah, that's, 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 that's very difficult. His, his career spanned 50 years. Right. Uh, and, and, and during that 50 years, I mean, he assumed uh, numerous positions and, and, and did a hell of a lot of things. I mean, he was, he was the prime minister for one. Well, he was a prime minister twice, twice for, for yes. one. He served, he served in the Imperial War Cabinet. He yeah. served in the British War Cabinet, which is quite astounding as a former enemy to sit in the, <laughs> to sit in the British War Cabinet. That's the steam with which they held him. And he led armies into battle at the head of them and often leading from the front uh, in great danger. Uh, besides that, I mean, he was a philosopher, as we know. He was an accomplished lawyer. He was, he, he was just an intelligent man, extremely intelligent. And uh, he had this great – the overriding – what I want to turn around is, is, is Bill Nassens uh, set out a challenge. He said, what is the essence of Jan Smuts? And certainly I narrowed it down to the military front. I said, what is the essence of Jan Smuts military-wise? That's what I'm trying to look at. Do, do, do you see what it, basically what makes the man tick military-wise? Now, what was so fascinating for me in terms of the military is whilst you fo- focused on Jan Smuts, I came across something which I guess I'd always taken for granted at, 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 some, at some level, which is the idea of a South African defense force. Yes. Uh, and and, and it, after 94, we had all these liberation groups like in Conto Esizo and whatever who, who had to get put into the South African Defence Force and now the, whatever criticisms people may have of, of the South African Army the fact that it operates as a South African Army is, is no small feat even from 94 but what I didn't realise and what I get, got from reading your book was actually this was not the first time that we've had this particular no, challenge and no. that one of Smuts's perhaps great contributions to South Africa's generalship is the idea of a South African Army no, absolutely. I mean, we've gone through this amalgamation process three times. Uh, one was in the formation of the Union Defence Force, where we uh, we conglomerated former enemies into into a, a single entity, which was remarkable in itself. This was this was because of the Boer War between the Afrikaners and the a- English. A- absolutely, there was a, there was an attempt to reconcile a very very bitter Afrikaner Afrikaner nation together with uh, the English speaking South Africans, and uh, Smuts formed the Union Defence Force in 1912. And, uh, and uh, the same uh, thing happened under Erasmus in 1948 when he came in. South African uh, Defence Force went uh, again with a, another overhaul. And uh, we saw the same in 1994. So uh, it's interesting to see that, that with every single war uh, that we've had here, we seem to have been, these are, we could almost call them wars of unification. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, with every single war, internecine war that we've had in South Africa, we seem to emerge more unified than before. That's one way of looking at it, isn't it? That's a positive way of looking at things. And, and yet you talk about in the book about the, the fighting, even though it was, it, it was the sort of unified grouping in the end, the, 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 the generals at the time when fighting the campaigns, which we're going to come talk to particularly in what was then called German Southwest Africa, we now call Namibia, Eastern, Eastern Africa, which was Kenya and Uganda, is that they had to actually have to take account of cultural differences within the army. So sometimes they would very deliberately have to send the Afrikaners, for lack of a better term, to go yes. uh, and do fighting, or the English, because actually there were these 
different ways of fighting which they had incorporated from the Boer War because you had the 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 commandos on the one side versus the old style English yes. more more formal militarism on the other. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. So uh, you, you're looking at a painstaking process in 1912 with the formation of the Union Defence Force where Smuts tried to make sure that uh, both groups, the English and the Afrikaners, were equally represented to the point of where there were 50% uh, English officers and 50% Afrikaner officers. That, that's the extent that they went to, uh, to, to try and get some equity into the defence force, much as what we see today. So people were, were uh, elected and given positions, not on merit, but on representation. Right. Uh, so it was quite interesting. I mean, the effect that it had on the uh, on the Union Defence Force at that time, and also the effect that it's had on our on our South African National Defence Force. Uh, so history has repeated itself to a certain extent, which is very, which is very very interesting. Like I say, it's a process that the South African uh, Defence Forces have gone through on numerous occasions. So we're getting better at it. There's no doubt about it. We've got a lot of practice, but it's yeah, it's 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 an interesting phenomenon to have a look at. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman talking today to Major David Katz about his book, Jan Smuts and the First World War. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. 101.9 Chai FM talking today to Major David Katz about his new book on the generalship of Jan Smuts. Now, David, interesting, before we get to the big campaigns, which, uh, which you cover in quite some detail in the book, Smuts's career is is sort of well known as a commando in the Boer War, then later on First World War, Second World War. But you trace some of the early developments in in his style and his focus from right here in in the Witwatersrand and and his uh, requirement to put down a miners' revolt uh, that happened uh, in 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 the early 1900s and the how that would have quite problematic effects down the line for South Africa and and how we've seen actually if you think about it uh, one of a number of massacres that ended up happening of of, of people in this in the sort of do you, do you want to talk to us a little bit about that uh, and a little bit what you discovered uh, looking at some of those first um, campaigns that he, he took on that were of a not quite military nature but nonetheless highly military well, interestingly enough, when, when Smuts formed the Union Defence Force in 1912, he was determined, together with Louis Boerter, he was determined to launch the UDF on uh, following a British-type doctrine, mm-hmm. uniforms which the Republican armies never had, strong discipline, uh, square bashing, that type of thing. You know, your more conventional type of, of, of army. So he was determined about that, and he actually relegated the Republican, the old Republican guard, back to what they called the Rifle Association, which was like a B type of reserve, kept out of the way and not, didn't really have a, a, a role in the new uh, Union Defence Force and the training of the Union Defence Force. Uh, they brought in uh, British advisors and British instructors to come instruct the new army. And uh, yeah, we had a bunch of Afrikaners and Englishmen working together, wearing that dreaded uh, English uniform, and that caused qu- quite a lot of trouble. So... South Africa, the Union Defence Force, was on a firm trajectory towards a British-type uh, style army. And uh, this is something that Smuts and Boerter were quite happy with because they had uh, suffered with the Ill, Ill discipline of the Republican forces during the, during the Boer War. So they were quite happy with this turn of events. We come along to 1913-1914. There's unrest on the Witwatersrand. Uh, there's a number of strikes at the mines. 
And uh, the Union Defence Force is not quite ready at this time to be deployed. The new Union Defence Force. So what do they do? They bring the rep- old Republican Guard out of uh, its mothballs in the rifle associations and they deploy them onto the Vatican to put down these strikes. With that, all the networks, the old Boer Republic networks uh, are re-established. People start meeting each other again and uh, suddenly the Republican armies have got influence on the way the UDF is fighting and the way it looks. This also, uh, one could say, not caused, but aided the Afrikaner rebellion that happened in 1914 because all, all the old links were established now with the call-up of the, uh, the old Republican Guard uh, via the commando system. But something interestingly happened when, uh, when, when uh, the Afrikaner rebellion was put down in 1914. They called on the loyalists, the Louis Boerte Jansmuts commando loyalists. It was Afrikaner against Afrikaner. They were fastidious about that. They didn't want Englishmen involved for obvious political reasons. And all of a sudden, the, 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 the loyalist Republican-type armies were inserted and became a major part of the Union Defense Force. In the meantime, what was happening was uh, South Africa was invading German Southwest Africa with basically English-led British-type military forces that had been trained in the British way uh, as phase one. That phase one uh, was truncated due to the Afrikaner Rebellion. And we moved on to phase two. And with the redeployment of the forces in phase two in the German Southwest African campaign, what did we have? We had the Republican forces now mounted infantry that were deployed and all of a sudden the, the Union Defence Force was on a different trajectory and became very, very old-style Republican commando, Boer way fighting orientated. Very interesting. So, so that goes to sort of another core aspect of your book, which is the sort of idea that as South Africans, that there is a South African style to our military f- focus, to, to the way that we operate. Uh, and and it's, it's particularly interesting because you cite in the book, particularly later campaigns in the First World War, how how much it relied on maneuverability and not uh, doing full frontal assaults and that sort of thing, which is quite apart from really the rest of the First World War, certainly on the Western Front. Certainly, yeah. Uh, so, so the question I have for you is, is what would you say you identified as some of those key aspects of the South African fighting style then? And do you think that it still has an impact today on, on the way that our armed forces operate well that's that's a very important question that was the motivation for me writing the book because as i said to you it was a prequel to south african versus rommel i tried to identify a a south african way of war which i think i did discover there's a definite pattern and a different type of south african way of war and i've tried to identify where that came from what are the roots of 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 where it came from uh what is that type of war well interestingly louis boerter eating his sandwiches somewhere in german southwest africa leading his troops on the front uh, one of the embedded journalists, they had embedded journalists in those days from Reuters, <laughs> asked him, he said, well, what is, what is the South African way of war? And I paraphrase here, you know, I'm taking a bit of poetic license. And he turned around and he said, uh, well, it's maneuverist. We like to maneuver. We don't, we, we don't like direct attacks. He says, and where, where did this come from? Where did you learn it from? He said, I learned it from fighting the Zulus. That's what Louis Boerter said. He learned it from fighting the Zulus. And if we go back, we see that the Zulus were also maneuverists. They used what's called the head and shoulders and the horns, and uh, they enveloped the enemy uh, in, in coordinated attacks. And uh, yeah, they, they, they were exceptional fighters. And, and obviously, the Afrikaners learned from fighting with them. So what is the South African way of war? What, what, are, what are some of the components that we can identify? Certainly, South Africans are maneuverists. They like to maneuver instead of uh, sitting in static positions. They like to envelop their enemy. 
and they like to psychologically dislocate the, the enemy by envelopment, by single or double envelopments, uh, rather than in expending lives in direct attacks against fixed positions. Uh, they, they value life over, over victory, and they would la- rather live to fight another day. And we can see this running as a golden thread. It's certainly with the Republican forces during the Boer War. We see that in German Southwest Africa with the low casualty rates. We see that in German East Africa with uh, a lot of criticism coming from the British that he didn't eliminate, which would have cost a lot of South African lives. He didn't eliminate his enemy. He rather maneuvered him out of position. We see this again in the Second World War with a conflict uh, between the, the, the South African generals and the British generals who often accused the South Africans of wanting to maneuver away from a dangerous position, then stay there and fight and, and, and die for a great cause. And uh, I do believe we see it in the South African Defence Force uh, on the border walls. And uh, I think there's a golden thread that runs right through to South African National Defence Force. Although it's not politically correct today to turn around and say, you know, our South African National Defence Force harks back to uh, a Boer way of war or a Republican Boer way of war. Uh, we have to couch it in slightly different terms. But South Africans are manoeuvrists, yes. And uh, I think we can see the golden thread running through uh, the different armies that we've uh, fielded. We've got an SMS come in from Mike Lubo saying the first concentration camps in South Africa and Jan Smuts uh, killed uh, the, uh, the, the, the Rand mine workers. Okay, so yes, we covered that. And if you have any, uh, any uh, elements you'd like to add, 0618951019, that is on the Telegram line, or 34519. Now, now you, you talk about political correct and the influence of, of Afrikaans. Uh, soldiering, if you like, on the South African on South African warfare, but you also cover the sort of other side and um, maybe the under undercovered undercovered part of of the South African uh, war experience because of of the role that black soldiers played uh, in 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 different campaigns and on different sides during different wars. Uh, for example, when you talk about the the German Southwest Africa, used, one of the big liabilities of the Germans was that they had uh, treated groups like the Herero so horrifically and others that they kept, have to, kept having to keep troops at the back to, to make sure that they didn't have an, an uprising. There were black soldiers who fought and paid huge price uh, for, for the Germans in, 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 in East Africa. So, so what elements do you think that black soldiers have had in, in, in helping to form the way of, of war of, of South African military? Well, interestingly, uh, let, let's take a quick look at the difference between uh, the German armies in German Southwest Africa and the German armies in German East Africa under von Leto Vorbeck. Mm. Uh, the Germans in German Southwest Africa didn't have the luxury of using uh, black troops at all because of exactly what you said, because of the genocide that they had committed. And they had alienated um, a, a large proportion of the black population in German Southwest Africa, and they had to protect their, their, their rear areas. And um, their main priority during that whole campaign was the protection of the white civilians against the uh, against the indigenous black population of German Southwest Africa. And uh, the invasion, the, the South African invasion, was became very much secondary to protecting the the, the, the white civilians. When we have a look, uh, when we juxtapose that with the, uh, with the situation in German East Africa, the major portion of von Leto Vorbeck's forces were Ascaris, what was called Ascaris, which were black troops. So uh, Leto Vorbeck at, its, uh, at his peak had about 15,000 serving members of what they called the Schutztruppen, and uh, of which 2,000 were white or European, 
and the rest were black soldiers. Uh, so the majority of the forces in German Southwest Africa were, were black, and they played a fundamental role in in, uh, in in the Germans being able to defend German uh, East Africa, as opposed to what happened in German Southwest Africa. Now, when we have a look at the South African situations, blacks have play, played a fundamental role in shaping our way of war, obviously uh, through the ages here, and the development of our various uh, defense forces. If we look at the current situation of South African National Defense Force, to a large extent we took over the doctrine of the South African Defense Force, but not entirely, not entirely. Um, we, 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 we certainly, the South African Defense Force was shaped by the enemies that had fought, and uh, with the amalgamation, it took on some of the doctrine of, 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 of the liberation forces that, uh, that fought against it. Uh, so the South African National Defense Force is just a conglomeration of all different types of military doc, uh, doctrine. But at, at this stage in the First World War where that, you, that you're talking about, Smuts, effectively, my understanding from the book is that in the early stages of the war, they, you couldn't politically have black soldiers fighting because there was a concern that they would then basically gain the skills to 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 attack white South Africans when they came back. So at the beginning part of the war, Smuts didn't have access to, to black soldiers. Is, is that a correct understanding? No, th- that, that's absolutely correct. Okay. Is that uh, there was a fear... Uh, certainly amongst the, the, the Afrikaner sections of the population uh, about arming black blacks uh, who would later uh, know how to use these weapons and turn them against the, the white minority governments of the time. There was a, there was a fear about that. There's certainly the Germans didn't feel any such compunction in German East Africa, where, as I've said, the, the major portion of their, of their soldiering was black. And so, they were quite happy to sacrifice those people's lives in quite large numbers as well, uh, the, the the, the, the Germans in East Africa. Well, okay, I don't, big, big, big casualties from, from that perspective. Well, are we in Germany, German East Africa? Yes. Well, certainly, uh, certainly uh, uh, von Leto Forbeck uh, uh, caused a hell of a lot of devastation to, to, to German East Africa yes. in the form of civilian deaths, uh, famine, uh, disease, uh, all these millions of porters that were used by the, by the German army to carry all the munitions and that type of thing. The death rate was horrendous. Very light casualties, actually, amongst the Germans in, in actual face-to-face fighting, but more just just uh, By, as part of the process. As part as as part of the process, yes. So let's talk about Forbeck because one of that's one of the other big things that you do. There's a, a sort of gentlemanly legend which has sprung up uh, around around his conduct during East Africa. Smuts is required uh, as when when South Africa joins the war in in the First World War. Uh, and, and we can talk about that as well. But Smuts goes to e- German East Africa and, and does an invasion. And there's almost this legend about Smuts chasing around this highly efficient and effective German general and not ever quite catching him. And there's, you know, there's stories about how they deeply respected each other, whatever. But you sort of take that apart a little bit in the book. You sort of think that there's not quite the, the story's not entirely accurate. No, not entirely accurate. I think the pendulum swung too far in the favor of Leto Forbeck um, and people eulogizing and, and, and writing hagio- hagiographies about uh, uh, this great guerrilla leader uh, running circles around uh, the Allied forces in Germany, East Africa. First of all, I, I honestly believe, the same as I did with Rommel, uh, not looking to explode any of the myths or anything like that, because uh, that's not what I set out to do. But Rommel and von Leto Forbeck were mere products of the German way of war. They were uh, perhaps maybe some uh, better exponents of the German way of war and they had uh, better skills than the average German general. 
but uh, they were very much products of, of, of the school that they came from. And they fought in a German way. And uh, one needs to understand the way the Germans fought to understand what Letter Forward was doing. He certainly was no uh, great guerrilla leader. Uh, we can't, we, we're not going to take a manual from him and learn how to fight guerrilla warfare mm -hmm. uh, because that's not really what he, what he did. He didn't certainly didn't have the population behind him. So he, he, he conducted himself in, 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 a, in a, a very conventional military type way. And I think that's one of, one of the things that I redress there. On the other hand, also, uh, I try to redress the balance in favor of, uh, more in favor of Jan Smuts to show some of his skill levels and the way he applied himself uh, to removing Leto Forbe from the majority of the territory of German East Africa. What do, you, what do you think accounts for this? Given that Smuts is generally speaking on most issues, maybe uh, there's a couple of ones aside, he's generally considered this sort of great man, and yet in the book you say his military history has sort of not been adequately identified. What, what do you think caused this misrepresentation of his ability? Well, uh, He's not universally admired, I can tell you that. I mean, I've experienced that myself when addressing uh, the Heritage Foundation at the Fuertrecker Monument recently, <laughs> trying, to sell, trying to sell Jan Smuts as a military reader. Guys were very courteous to me, and they listened to me very courteously, but uh, totally disagreed with what I had to say. Uh, they see Jan Smuts as a traitor to the cause, uh, not, not uh, the, 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 the Queen's uh, lapdog, Queen's poodle. And not looking after after Afrikaner uh, interest at all for Raya. Those are some of the words that are that, that, that I heard. Which is which so, is so interesting because in the book you also cover how he took advantage of the weakness of Britain because he was very much a South African nationalist. When when he invades what we now call Namibia, German Southwest Africa, initially the Brits just wanted him to knock out a few communication channels and make sure that the Germans didn't do anything dodgy. But but he actually saw this as an opportunity to really take land back for the South African project. Well, he was the arch, arch expansionist. And I mean, if we look at the essence of Smuts, that is his essence, is that he sought a greater South Africa. And I don't mean greater in a better. I'm not saying that. He, he, he sought a, a South Africa that was vastly, had more territory than we know that South Africa has today. He wanted to expand the borders right up north, even to Cairo. That was his dream. And it was a dream that, that he never departed from. And uh, he took every opportunity uh, during his 50 years to try and uh, fulfill his expansionist dream. And he saw the, worth, the First World War as a great opportunity to take over German Southwest Africa. And as you've said, he went beyond uh, what the British wanted him to do there by, by conquering the whole territory instead of just taking out some of the wireless stations that they instructed him to do. And certainly the same again with German East Africa. He wanted to uh, acquire the entire territory so that he could swap it out for uh, uh, Mozambique, Delagoa Bay, uh, negotiate with the Portuguese in a land swap scheme. So... A lot of his motivation and his essence was uh, expansionism. And that's what drives what his objectives are all about. And I think we need to understand that when we, when we think about Jan Smuts. Now, you've written the book as a sort of half academic book, half popular uh, accessible uh, text. What has been the reception so far? I've seen pictures of you at, the, at, at um, exclusive books with it up on the top 10 seller list, which is quite nice. But at the same time, you say you, you are writing about a controversial guy. Not everybody likes it. So what has been the, what has been the reaction so far? Well, I mean, there's, 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 there's a great difficulty in making an academic work accessible to the general public. And I mean, I think it's a duty of academics to do that. Many academics are, are, are shy away from that type of thing and, and write and do their writings 
for the, for the academic population. And they never worry about getting uh, their work out there to the general population. That's not where they're going with it. Uh, I'd like my work to be accessible to, to, to the general public. So I hope I've, been man- I've managed to uh, make it accessible while still retaining uh, some decent historical method and, uh, and, and producing a book that is, that is academically sound. Uh, I think it's been doing uh, very well. I mean, as you've seen, it's, it's uh, on the bestseller list of exclusive books. I think it's been well received. And uh, yeah, I just hope it goes from strength to strength and it does the circulation. Oh, absolutely. So that's um, General Jan Smuts and his first world war in Africa, 1914 to 1917, by Major David Katz. And uh, as you can hear, you can get it at all good bookstores published by Jonathan Ball. Um, David Katz, thank you so much for joining us on 101.9 High FM and uh, talking to us about the life and legacy of Smuts on, in a military way. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Benji. I'm 101.9. I'm not 101.9. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is 101.9 High FM.